Again, in Luke chapter 2, um, you can read the story, and Heath has already done that, and I ask him to do that uh, just to essentially give some brevity to this message because we want to get out of here in the next 20 or 25 minutes. But um, the story as it's recorded um, fulfills primarily four major prophecies, but there are over a hundred Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we even read of the Magi coming from the east and uh, beholding this star that appeared in the sky, and that would not necessarily have been um, all that mysterious to them. If you consider just for a little bit what has transpired over the past four to 500 years prior to their arrival in Bethlehem, how did they know? Did an angel of the Lord tell them? I'm not sure. But what I do know, and what we all know from Scripture and the Old Testament account, is that Israel was completely decimated. The Lord had judged them for, listen up, fathers, for their fathers giving their daughters and sons in marriage and led away into idolatry. And so the Lord pronounced judgment on Israel on a few times and took them captive. First of all, by the Babylonians. The Assyrians came in and then the Babylonians scattered them. The Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple, and the Persians came along and took them away. We know from the four accounts of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, those guys were prophesying during captivity. We know that Daniel and Hananiah, Mazariah, and, it, and Hananiah, Azariah, and who's the other one? Somebody help me out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was their translated name. We know that those four people were elevated, those four Israelites were elevated to a position of authority and ran the entire country for that king. And we know that Daniel was put on the dock, if you will, taken to trial by the religious leaders of their day and said, hey, Nebi, Daniel's bending down and praying to his God. And you know, you can go back and read the whole story of Daniel yourself. We just finished a study in, that, in our Sunday school. But we know, but I say all that just to, to punctuate the fact that our Old Testament theologians, as it were, those prophets of the Old Testament, were in captivity, and these men of the East were from Persia, Assyria, Babylon. And that's where these men, these wise men, came from the East. They had been under the tutelage or certainly had the manuscripts of the Old Testament and could fulfill and dot the, you know, cross, what do you say, put the dots together, right? And, and understand that there's a prophet that's going to show up here because Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own brothers. You must listen to him. They had read on Isaiah 7:14 that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. They had read and had the manuscripts there themselves, the Old Testament, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Father, Son, Holy Spirit right there, as you guys can see. We know in Micah 5:2 that they knew that this king would be born in Bethlehem because in Micah 5.2, Micah had prophesied, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And then we know also in Numbers 24, which they had in their possession, these magi, that is, as they make their way across the desert, not several thousand miles, but certainly over a thousand miles, that a star would appear. So they'd put... They'd 
drawn the line between all those dots. It's not a big mystery. And for us, 2,000 years removed, and you look back, it's just like, eh, I don't know, it's kind of far-fetched, I don't know. For some skeptics, for us believers, it's, we know the extent and the validity of Scripture. But if you just think about the Magna Carta, for example, written around 1200, you think about the, the Mayflower Compact, just written in 1600. That's three, four, five hundred years removed, 1,200, okay, 800 years. We have those physical copies of those manuscripts. We have descendants and know people. Oh, yeah, my grandpa, 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 great, great, great was on the Mayflower. You've heard those stories. So just the fact that these wise men are, are attaching the dots, that's not the expression. I'm missing that strike. But what is it? Connecting the dots. Thank you. Connecting the dots. It's not that far removed for them. You know, it's a few hundred years. So it's not that mysterious. And whatever the case may have been, these wise men were in fact familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures because they revered our Jesus in that manger and brought Him gifts signifying His deity, signifying with the myrrh that He would be buried, He would die and, and die a king's death, in a sense be honored like a king, and He was. And the real mystery, again, just as we make our way through here, is not that the birth was prophesied. Though that's, that's powerful, and it's staggering fulfillment of God and, and God authenticating himself, just like he said he would in Isaiah. He said, I will tell history before it happens so as to authenticate my word in myself. And the mystery as we gaze into this manger is not that Jesus grew up and performed many miracles, though that's, that's also staggering and amazing and the Lord has performed many miracles in the past and has performed miracles as even in our future, in our, in our current society and in our current culture we hear and we read about and even know people that have experienced miracles. And that's amazing, don't get me wrong, but that's, that's really not the, the most mysterious thing. And the mystery really isn't so much in how many lives have been transformed by Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit transforming lives, although that does punctuate the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God when somebody believes and trusts in Him. Billions of people across the world believe in Jesus and their lives have been transformed. And that's, man, that's fantastic. Praise God. But the real mystery, or the very heart of the mystery again, is that God became man. And this has kept theologians drumming their chins for centuries. All God, all man. How can that be? D.A. Carson says this, A mystery indeed. A mystery indeed. But we don't necessarily have to explain it all away, but rather we need to take the biblical evidence, retain it fairly, find ways of synthesis that are rational and coherent, even if they're not exhaustively explanatory, and put our faith and trust in that. We don't have to explain it away. Lee Strobel, many of you have read his books, and if you haven't, I would certainly encourage you to. He wrote, he's written The Case for Christ, The Case for God, The Case for Faith, and he has a little book where he picked it up for me last week, ironically enough, called The Case for Christmas. And in there, he goes into exhaustive detail in a couple of chapters stringed together about he's a, he's a legal journal, journalist um, and a graduate of Yale University, just a brilliant scholar, and goes and, and, and uh, interviews several experts. But in so doing, he's explaining how a legal journalist will, if they're trying to solve a crime, they'll hire a professional artist. And they'll sketch out what that guy looked like. 
and then through more investigation and interview, they will sketch out this guy's life and his, some of his habits and some of his idiosyncrasies and where he's been and what he's doing and what he try to get in his mind and what he's thinking. But they'll have a sketch of him, right? Not different for us in the person of Jesus Christ. All God and all man. You sure about that? That's a mystery. Well, it is. But we have for us a sketch, as it were, in the Old Testament, right? We know the attributes of God have been given to us and sketched out very plainly. That God is omnipotent. That God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's eternal. He's immutable. That is, He's unchangeable. We know that in the Old Testament, He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Alpha and the Omega. His long-suffering patience with a stubborn people was demonstrated over thousands of years in preserving a remnant in Israel. His overwhelming glory when He chooses to reveal Himself is too much to bear. And of course, His fury of judgment when His patience has run its course. And if that's the sketch of God in the Old Testament and kind of the vision that you get, shouldn't Christ Himself carry forth some of those same attributes? Absolutely. Right? So we're solving a case. I mean, the mystery of all God, all man. Was he everywhere all the time? I mean, he's human. He even said at one point, I don't know when my father's coming back. Well, he wasn't all-knowing then, was he? Well, he was in the end because John even goes on to say in John chapter 16, now we can see that you know all things. He was omniscient, and they knew it. Limited for a short time and in the capacity of human flesh? Absolutely. And not at all. Omnipresent. Could he be everywhere all the time? Surely I am with you always, he said in Matthew 28. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And even Matthew 18, we know that this is in the context of settling a dispute, but where two or three are gathered in me, in my name, there I will be with them. He is omnipresent and was. Choosing the disciple Nathan. I knew what you were doing before. What? How many times do we read in the Scripture? I think there's nine different accounts in the Gospels that, where he reads their mind. I know what you're thinking. Perceiving what they were thinking in their minds, he then said. He was all-knowing. His omnipotence, Matthew 28, we know as he's making his way back to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, surely he would take on then, how do you display your eternality? In John 1, the author of John, John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. His immutability, Hebrews 13 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know in the Old Testament, God calls Himself the Alpha and the Omega. And in Revelation 22:13, at the very, very end of Revelation, Jesus Himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Isn't that interesting? Brilliantly put together. I invite all of you to buy, to get a copy of that book. Lee Strobel, The Case for Christmas, it's real small. And he, he does a much better job at, at expositing this. So when you look at the Old Testament account in the sketch, as it were, you do in fact see the very likeness of God in Christ. The mystery as we gaze into that manger today, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, we celebrate God with us. And ultimately, as he promised in fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, that his spirit would be in us. He didn't leave us here by ourselves. See you later. Good luck. No. 
When I go, I will send one to be with you. That wonderful counselor that we just read about, Isaiah chapter 9, that wonderful counselor, and he will be called counselor, and he will be with you. And I will be in you, and we will be in God. John chapter 14, just Jesus lays out very clearly the Holy Spirit that he would leave with us. Then he says in John 14, kind of to summarize this sketch, as it were, that we've been given, he says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. And from now on, you do know him and you've seen him. That's in the upper room just before he leaves. That God that you've been reading about in the Old Testament, I'm him. Yet I'm not. God in three persons. Certainly a divine mystery. Yet given the evidence we're provided throughout Scripture, it's altogether true. Jesus describes himself this way. I am the way. He said he was the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He called himself the gate, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the true vine, the Christ, the Son of God, the Alpha and Omega, the living one. And he says this, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? Peace on earth and goodwill to men. How many times do we sing that? We sing it tonight. And the conclusion of that verse that we've just ironically, very ironically left out upon whom his favor rests. Upon whom his favor rests. He says this, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? This is Luke chapter 12, verse 51. You think I've come to bring peace on earth? You got it wrong, boys. I haven't come to bring peace, but division. I thought this song, we just, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Every Christmas card you get, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Finish the verse, upon whom his favor rests. It's not a good thing. In Revelation chapter 19, if you have not made Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior, it's not a good ending at all. He goes on to say, I'm going to turn a mother against a daughter and a father against his son. I'm going to split marriages. This is real. I don't want anybody between you and me. Can you imagine standing at the altar, you're at a wedding, you're just a participant, and you see the minister presiding over the service, and he's getting ready to say the vows, and she says, hey, just a minute. The bride says, can you just wait just a minute? Um, that stuff that you just said, I've got a few of my own little secrets that I'm going to retain. Okay, I'm not going to give my whole life to this guy. Now, this is you're getting a little overboard here. Sickness and health, are you joking? Good times and bad? No. Bad times, I'm out. So you can carry on, minister. As you were watching, you'd say, wow, that, that's not going to look very good in a few years. It's not going to look very good for the world if they don't bow their knee and trust in Christ as their personal Savior. It's not a good ending. Can you imagine Jesus holding a press conference? And I will save striking the pose of our current leader. If he was to hold a press conference and display it, videotron it, beam it all over the world, he would say this, and I say this with all gentleness and humility. You religious rulers of the world, these are Jesus' words, not mine. You are children of the devil. Imagine this on screen and it's going around the world. You're children of the devil. You're liars. You're thieves. You're robbers, you're rapacious imposters, you're snipers, you're, you're vipers and snakes, you are wolves, you're empty tombs full of dead men's bones, you're unbelieving and perverse. 
thank you and have a good day. Can you imagine that going around the world? You make one crude comment against the Muslims of this world, and you'll start a world war. That's harsh talk. That's our Lord. That's the mystery of divine personality. All loving? Absolutely. He he speaks this to the religious rulers, those that think that they have found the way, a way, and are trying to recruit people away from God. And that same Jesus, when brought a harlot before him, ready to be stoned, bows down, draws in the sand, said, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Go, sweetheart, your sins are forgiven. It was James Stewart, a Scottish theologian in the 1800s, and I recount this from Ravi Zacharias. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming in the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they were expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a sheer seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of us self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he strolled into the temple and the hucksters and money changers stumbled over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire that they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet in the end, Himself, he would not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast that confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. As we gaze on that manger today, tonight, as you celebrate Christmas, I just ask, challenge, encourage, exhort, and admonish you to consider his divine nature and his divinity. And if you have not made Jesus Christ your personal Savior, I challenge you to make that decision. He does not leave us with anything other than a decision for or a decision against him. He does not leave that option. He's not a good moral teacher. Somebody that stands up and has a press conference and says, Hey, you bunch of children of the devil, you liars, you thieves, you rapacious wolves, you empty tombs, you unbelieving and perverse people, that's not a nice guy. He wasn't a great moral teacher only. He was a good moral teacher. But he was more than that. C.S. Lewis said this. Many of you have heard this a lot. It's just too good not to read. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman and something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. At the end of our evaluation, we have only two ways to go. We believe in him or we don't when we consider the Christ child on Christmas night. This child, Jason McConaughey, last week we were at our girls' graduation in CSU and heard a splendid message. And he said, this child in this manger will one day be your judge and he will also be your covering if you'll let him. He will cover you from the judgment of God if you'll let him. That child in that manger will be your judge and he'll be your covering if you'll let him. He didn't come with a new set of commandments other than one. And we always like to do this in our Bible studies. Which, which new commandment did God bring? Did Jesus say, oh, he didn't bring any new commandment. Yes, he did. He brought one. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world, Paul Washer says, you don't have to go pick it outside of immoral places. You don't have to go pick it clinics. You don't have to pick at anything. You live a righteous and a holy life, and the world will hate your guts. And that in itself will be a mission. You just live a righteous life. Give God the glory. The world will hate you. Don't be discouraged. Do not fear. They hated me first, Jesus said. Right? It's okay. Praise God. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name. For theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. No, he came with one commandment, just love one another and make disciples of nations, making disciples of one another. Romans 3.20-26, through 26, we have community groups on Wednesday night and the men of our community group decided that we wanted to memorize Romans 3.20-26 through 26, and so we did that and just to hold me accountable, I thought, well, you know what, we'll start doing this with our first and second graders because that really is the heart of the gospel message. And Paul says it this way, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Isn't that what Jesus said? You Pharisees, you, you travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when you do, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. You can't keep all this. Try, absolutely try, and I will give you my spirit, and that is our goal. But you're not going to be righteous by observing this law, no. A righteousness from God, apart from the law, has now been made known to which this law and prophets testify. These law and the prophets, those magi, those, early, those Old Testament prophecies were pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. No, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You want God's righteousness? You want access? You want to go to the chief shepherd? You want to walk through the narrow gate? You want to be found blameless in his sight? That only comes through Jesus Christ. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. How? Through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Through the redemption. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. He washed you clean through faith in his blood. Through faith. Not by observing a law. Not by pursuing another book with a whole list of other requirements. Not by pursuing some Eastern guru who gives you the eight maxims to be a good person. These are the world religions of the day. I will leave them unnamed. 
No, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And why did he do this? Well, he did it for two reasons. To demonstrate his justice. Because in his long-suffering patience that we talked about, he had left the sins committed beforehand, all these Old Testament sins, all yours and my sins beforehand, unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's the mystery of the manger, of that child in that manger. He came to give us the free gift of eternal life. This Christmas, as you gaze on the majesty and the mystery of that manger scene, consider the mystery not as a stumbling block, as D.A. Carson said, but as the only way that an all-loving God could save a fallen and hurting world. Invade humanity in man form. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You again so much for this day that we've set aside. We understand it could have been another day. But it's this day that we've chosen to collectively as believers, perhaps some here non-believers, come and adore and worship You tonight. We do all here together and collectively by faith. We join our hands together and we bow down at Your feet. And we acknowledge You as our God and our Savior, our Redeemer and our friend. We thank You so much from the very bowels of our souls that You've given us Your Spirit, Your Holy Spirit. And we ask that today, tonight, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives, that He would reveal to us our need for You. God, I ask a special blessing on every person here, every family here, that the joy of Christmas would absolutely be overwhelming. Lord, I pray that we walk out of here tonight encouraged. I pray, Lord God, that these words that have been spoken, and especially Your Scriptures that punctuate everything, Lord, that we, our faith would be anchored even more solid upon the rock of Christ. God, I pray Your special blessing and Your protection over these, Your people. Protect us from the enemy wiles, from, the harm, from harm's way, Lord God. And please, we ask, we plead with You with outstretched arms to protect us from the influences of this culture. May we go forth tonight as a body of believers, Lord God, that reflect the image of that Christ child and of Your Son. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, the most precious name in all of heaven and earth that we ask and pray all of these things. And all God's people said, Amen.